Well, if we've not met, my name's Nathan. I get to be pastor here at West Bowles, although if you're new the last couple of weeks, you wouldn't know that because I've hardly shown my face here. I, uh, a couple weeks ago, we took a break from going through the Gospel of Mark to hear from some different voices in the congregation, and we're going through life verses, and one of the things we've been saying is that anytime God's word intersects with somebody's story, it becomes God's testimony. And that you've already gotten to hear from Shar and Meredith. It's been incredible. And I, I look forward to that continuing. Um, that said, you are back to putting up with me next week. All right, next week. This morning, in just a minute, I'm going to bring out Tom Tonelli. But first, a little bit of context. When I showed up here at West Bowles, I was a sophomore at Columbine High School. And I discovered that Tom Tonelli, that you're about to hear from, his fingerprints and his footprints were already all over West Bowles. He had been part of really getting the youth group going, he and his wife, Lori, um, back in, you guys are like 28, so it wasn't too long ago. No, it, it, uh, it was a little before that. But anyway, they were a big part of getting that going. And so I actually did not meet Tonelli here for the first time at West Bowles. I met Tom Tonelli at Columbine when he was my wrestling coach. And I was telling Graham this morning, Tonelli is the one who taught me how to throw people in headlocks for Jesus. And um, Tonelli said, no, we suplexed people for Jesus. That's how we showed our, our love to them. Uh, and then my senior year, I had Tom Tonelli as a teacher, a sociology teacher. And I can tell you this. Many teachers make a point. Tom Tonelli is a teacher who made a difference. And I believe that was absolutely because of the relationship he has with Jesus Christ. And so all that being said, his was a class that I just looked forward to, unlike any other class I have ever had at any level of education. And you are about to find out why. And so will you please join me in welcoming Tom Tonelli this morning? Thank you. <clears throat> Hello, West Bulls, uh, and thank you, Nathan. Um, I teach in a classroom filled with pictures. So not school posters, not teacher posters. These are all pictures. I took a panoramic of my room, and these are all pictures of my former students. Some of the people in this room are actually on this wall. And so Tommy's not up there because I haven't put this year's stuff, but there's some people right over here that are on this wall, and it's a... It's a great thing. I, I love having that. Um, about 10 years ago, a kid walked up to me and he said, Hey, Tanella, you have 4,835 pictures on your wall. And I said, are, like, are you Rain Man? I mean, how do you know this? And he said, I, I don't even know who Rain Man is. Um, but no, I just know you have 4,835 pictures. And I said, well, how in the world do you know that I have 4,835 pictures? He said, I've counted every one of them. And I said, oh my gosh, you counted every picture during my class? And he said, I've been incredibly bored, all right? <laughs> I was like, thanks for, thanks for making me feel so good about my teaching career, all right? No, that student was not Tommy, all right? So, but uh, it was great. He, this kid was a great kid. So I, I tell you that because the pictures are mostly pictures of seniors who I've had. And so they give me their senior picture. Now, there's some up there that are not senior pictures. Can we throw the first one up there real quick so you can kind of get an idea? This is a picture of a bunch of guys. My son is actually really good friends with these guys. They just graduated from college. They're all about 22 years old. And they took this picture. They're actually at Chatfield. Isn't that kind of a cool picture that their ties and their suits on? 
Um, and underneath everybody's picture, on the top of everybody's picture, I put their name. These guys, this group of dudes, went by the Goodfellas. They just went by the name the Goodfellas. Now, I don't, I don't think they were in the mafia. I, uh, I don't think they aspire to be in the mafia. I hope not. They, I don't think any of them were Italians. But the bottom line is they went by the Goodfellas. And they were really, my son will tell you, like, these are some of, they were great kids. And so maybe they really just were Goodfellas. The next picture, don't know what to think of this one. Um, this is a kid dunking on me. So he gave me a picture, and I am the person getting dunked on. And I was like, hey, kudos for the Photoshop there, Pablo. It's really good. Um, I said, but I kind of am a little bit offended that you would do that to me. And he's like, no. And I said, but it looks like I took the charge. And if you guys know anything about basketball, he said, no, you got a blocking foul. So I posterized you. I jammed on you. And I made the free throw. It's an and one shot. So I don't love that picture, but a lot of the kids that come in my class are like, that is hilarious. So um, the next one is one of my, uh, this girl's name was Amber Ralston. And she graduated 15 years ago. Brilliant girl, super smart, had a really, really smart sister too, just a wonderful family. And um, about eight years ago, she was pregnant. Um, her and her husband, Greg, were about to have a kid, and she was 22 weeks into the pregnancy. And it's neat because a lot of these kids I still stay in touch with, and Amber is one of those people. And so uh, they were taking a camping trip, and they were driving through Montana or uh, Wyoming or something like that, and she went into labor at 22 weeks. Now, every mom knows, and I think every dad knows, this is not a good thing because you're supposed to be 40 weeks. And I think 36 weeks is, is when they could consider the pregnancy full term. So she went into labor at 22 weeks. They brought her to the hospital right away, and they said, you're going to have this baby. There's just no way around it. And so this baby was born. Her son was born. And that, if you can make it out, is baby Wyatt. And baby Wyatt, so you can kind of get an understanding of this, is next to a beanie baby. That's how small he is. He was one pound, four ounces. One pound, four ounces. And I know you never want to start your sermon by crying, but I just caught Amber's eyes right there, and so I'm just like, this is an amazing story. One pound, four ounces. 23, 22, 23 weeks into the, in the pregnancy. So it's hard to get a grip, but that's his hand in his dad, Greg's hand. So now you can understand how small he was. Now, if I was really good at sermons, if I was as good as Nathan, I would weave this story throughout. And at the very end, I'd be like, oh, and what happened to baby Wyatt, right? You'd want to know. I'm not good at surprises. I always give them away. My wife will tell you that I'm horrible. So I got to tell you what happened to baby Wyatt right away. Okay, is that all right? Okay. This is baby Wyatt today. That's the same beanie baby. That's the same Beanie Baby, okay? He is seven years old. His mom and his little brother and Wyatt stopped by school last week, all right? And it was one of the coolest things. By the way, how good does this story get? Wyatt means warrior. Wyatt means warrior. So Amber and Greg, you, I know Wyatt is a warrior. You guys are warriors. I am so thankful for the, your presence in my life. So Amber and Greg are right there. Give them a golly. One pound, four ounces. One pound, four ounces. There's also other images up there. I mean, obviously not all of these have these heavy stories behind them. Um, there's stories of people that you might recognize. You might know this guy up here. 
That is your pastor, Nathan Harrison. And Nathan, the craziest part is Nathan's got like the, what do you call that? The tips, the frosted tips look. I think he was really, back then he was kind of into Eminem, you know what I mean? And it was Eight Mile, the movie had just come out. And before Nathan Harrison could spit flames from here, he was spitting flames rapping when he was a high school senior. So that's your pastor right there. All right. And Kara, that is your husband. So congratulations on that. Hey, let's get for Kara for winning that lotto, huh? So Nathan asked me to, to speak, and I said, great, what's it going to be about? And he said, you can just pick a life verse. I'm like, oh, gosh, that's really, really great. I thought he was going to pick something like out of Revelation. I would have no idea. So I did ask my wife. I said, what do you think makes a great sermon? Now, my wife is Steve Burns's. I mean, you guys know Steve, Steve's daughter. So she grew up in church. She's heard hundreds, if not thousands, of sermons. And so she said to me, she said, um, well, two weeks ago, did you hear Shar's message? I said, absolutely. She said, and last week, were you really listening when Meredith was speaking, I said, for sure. And she said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Sound more like Shara and Meredith and sound a little bit less like yourself. And it'll go great. And I was like, oh, man. No, she did not say that. She just said, hey, be authentic. She said, after all these years, I think authenticity is the one thing that I really care about. And so in the spirit of being authentic and uh, in the spirit of being truthful, I have to tell you, I make a ton of mistakes as a teacher. Um, not just in teaching concepts or being impatient with the students in my class or getting information wrong. I'm saying I make a lot of mistakes. Now, thankfully, they're not photographed or on YouTube or anything like that, but there have been a few mistakes that I've made that are actually on video at the school that I teach in. So if we could pull the first one up, since I teased Nathan about his frosted hair, um, this is me coming into school all right, during Thanksgiving break. Hopefully you can focus in on that. Yeah, so I, uh, that's me when it goes down like a sack of potatoes. And I don't know what's worse, the slip and fall, that red minivan that I was driving in the back, okay, that was the car I'm driving, and the fact, I guess the most embarrassing thing might be that I'm still driving that red minivan, all right? So three embarrassing moments, but being authentic, that's how it is. The other one is I... <laughs> In the summer, I ride a scooter, all right? And my wife gave me, my wife bought me this scooter. It's the best gift she ever got me, all right, in 30 years of marriage. And I was cruising to school, all right, because I care about the environment and I want to drive an electric scooter. And I realized, oh, the gate is closed in the parking lot, so I'm just going to go through the grass. And I, I went back and looked. There was one divot in the entire grass. That's the divot I hit right there. So the guys that were playing tennis, though, that's the good thing. They got something out of that day. So... I don't tell you, you're probably like, well, how, why in the world does this have anything to do with the paralytic verse that was on the board just a few minutes ago? Did Tanelli get injured? Is somebody have to take him to the hospital? That slip and fall was really bad. Did he call Frank Azar? Did he go to the doctor? And the answer is, no, I'm just trying to be authentic. In fact, I got to tell you, can you go back to the video, Chloe, of the me? There's something impressive about this. I don't know how well you can see this, but I am 50 years old when this happens. All right? I slip and fall, but let's watch this real quick. When I slip and fall, right here, boom, 1,001, 1,002, I'm up. Just like that. So, I mean, come on. I'm trying to salvage whatever pride I have left, but at least I got back up pretty quick. So, uh, again, I'm trying to salvage what pride I have, and it does have, it has a little to do with the paralytic, but it, 
The story of the paralytic appears in the three synoptic gospels, okay? And so it appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so um, I didn't do the verse like they usually do, and there's a reason why. We're going to read that verse right now, but I'm not going to read it to you. I'm going to have one of my heroes read the verse. So will you please stand for the reading of God's word? Men came bringing to Jesus a paralyzed man carried by four of them since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on when Jesus saw their faith he said to the paralyzed man son Your sins are forgiven. Okay. Please have a seat. I'll get to this in a second. Get to him in a second. So why does the story of the paralytic resonate with me? I think it resonates with a lot of people. This week I was talking to my mom, and I called, and I said, oh, I'm going to be doing this. And she said, well, what will you be talking about? And I said, I'm just going to talk about the story of the paralytic carried in by four of his friends. And my mom said, I love that story. I love that story. And I think it's probably true for a lot of you. I can still remember the first time I really heard that story and paid attention. I was 16 years old. I could tell you the room I was in. I could tell you the guy that spoke it. In fact, last night I texted that guy and said, 30 years ago you read that story. I want you to know how much I love you and how, much, how thankful I am for you for doing that. It's not just me that loves a story. It's you that loves a story. There's been books written about this story. There's been sermons given about this story. There's been incredible pictures painted about this story, pictures like this picture right here. Um, I think I love the story because it's a story about friendship, and friendships are important to all of us in this room. It's a story of four friends, or maybe more than four friends, who love somebody so much that they're going to make sure he gets taken care of. It was interesting because my wife and I were walking or driving home last week, and uh, I said to her, I asked her, I said, what was the most powerful part of what Meredith said last week? And she said, for her, the most powerful part was when Meredith talked about, like, crying out to God when there are no words. When you're in such deep pain, you have no words to express it, but still being able to cry out to God. And she said to me, she said, well, what about you after she was done? She said, what about you? What was it for you? And I said, obviously... Both Shar and Meredith did incredible jobs, but I said the most powerful thing that happened last week was not what she spoke from up here. I said the most powerful thing was when she was done, and I don't know how many people could notice it because everybody stood up, but when she was finished, she walked down here, and there was about 40 of her friends waiting for her, and they all grab her and hug her and tell her how much they love her, and I always sit right up here. And I'm lo- I've got the perfect view, and I'm looking down on that, and I think that is how life is supposed to be experienced. You know, we all talk about living life in community. That is community. And so I'm very thankful to Meredith and what she said, but I am so very thankful, too, to her friends who love her 
and that she loves as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you. That is such a beautiful thing. It was such a great thing to watch that. So friendship is one reason why I love it. I also love it because it shows you how much Jesus cares about people who are disenfranchised, who people that the paralytic had no hope, but Jesus loves the hopeless. At least that's what we see in the Gospels, thankfully. So I got to tell you that it's been an incredible thing to think about, you know, why I love this story. I see a glimpse of who Jesus is, um, how much he loves us, his power not only to perform a miracle, but to forgive sin. And if he forgives the sins of the paralytic, he can forgive my sins, his role as our Savior. But I got to tell you, it's beautiful and worthy and, you know, wonderful and worthy of reflection and discussion. Those things are. What I want to talk with you about today, especially as you get ready to go back to school, is how this parable, or not that was parable, how this story has really affected me as a teacher. Okay? So you probably already know this. I don't know if anybody here is a teacher, but I know even if you're not a teacher, you know this. Teachers get into education because they have altruistic motives. They, they want to make a difference in the lives of the kids. Now, some people love history, and they want to teach that and convey their excitement for that with their students. And some people love anatomy, which I can totally understand. Some people love mathematics, which I cannot understand at all, all right? But there are people who love to teach quadratic formulas. I have no idea why. We have some great ones at the school that I teach at. But I don't care if you're teaching Elizabethan poetry, if you're teaching a story about the Battle of the Bulge, if you're teaching something about, you know, the central nervous system. You want to teach life lessons. Every teacher wants to teach life lessons. So it's very altruistic. So teachers start out thinking, or at least I started out thinking, that everything I did in the classroom was going to be spectacular, all right? And so some of the people were in my classroom the first couple of years over here. So they don't, and I honestly thought, like, I'm going to do it in such an innovative way. I'm going to do it where it's really entertaining. I'm going to do it really sort of exciting. And these kids are going to love me like I loved my favorite teachers, like you loved your favorite teachers, all right? Everything's going to be exciting. Everything's going to be fun. And the truth is, I also thought that I would rescue every single kid from any pitfall of adolescence. In reality, I truly thought, I don't know, I would be one of these guys. I'm going to be one of these guys. I want to be the guy that does all the helping. And as arrogant as I was, I thought I'll be the guy that does all the saving. And as you might guess, that is not exactly how things happened. But I have to tell you, and I want to get this right, that even though it has not turned out exactly like I thought, becoming a teacher in the public schools, becoming a teacher in the public schools has brought me closer to Christ than I ever would have imagined. Now, I had really godly parents. Um, they are 84 years old. They have an absolutely wonderful marriage. They raised seven children, and they're phenomenal people. I have a wonderful wife, four great kids, um, an extended family that are all like my best friends, okay? So I have great siblings, great in-laws. I'm also, some of you know, I'm the son-in-law of Joyce Hunter. And if you know anything about Joyce Hunter, you know that I could have never asked for a better mother-in-law. I mean, you talk about a person who's a witness for Jesus Christ every single day of her life and every single action. But I got to tell you again that apart from my family, and of course like Scripture— Scripture is the single biggest influential thing in my life, and I think in a lot of our lives. But apart from that, being a teacher in the public schools has impacted my spiritual life more than anything else. And what, is, what I discovered is, like, as much as I want to be these guys up here, I end up being this guy. I end up being this guy. And it's students. 
It's the students that have carried me. It's the students in the public school that have carried me. Let me show you what I mean. This is Mike Hansey. You just saw a video of him. This is when he was a senior in high school. He was Nathan's senior year, all right? When he was 14 years old, he had a traumatic brain injury. He was with his Boy Scout crew, and they were going down St. Mary's Glacier, and the tube went out of control, and all the kids got hurt. He got hurt the worst. He got a traumatic brain injury. By the time his parents got to the hospital, they said he will not live through the night. He certainly will not live, period. They were not mean doctors. They were just being honest. They were just telling them what was going to happen, but the injury was so severe that they knew that Michael would not live. He would not recover from this. Obviously, he did recover because he read. But seven months, he was in a coma. Seven months, the guy was in a coma. The parents took him home, took care of him, even though they're like, look, you might want to just put him in the facility. Like, no way, we're bringing this kid home. They brought him home. They would tug on his ears to wake him up. And one day, he reaches out. He's totally like, looks like he's unconscious, and grabs his brother's ear, okay? And the whole house goes bonkers. Well, that's not the end of the story, obviously. Things weren't normal. He has to go back and learn to walk and talk and eat and read and speak and do everything else that he learned before. So over the course of the next three years, what we do is we watch this kid in our hallways with his mom every single day, getting wheeled through in a wheelchair. Sometimes he would take steps, but when he's walked, I mean, this is as far as he's going. This is as fast as he's going. Well, very, very slow process. His goal was, I just want to walk at graduation. He did walk at graduation. It's funny because when I mentioned Nathan, I said, hey, I'm going to talk about my cancer. He says, I remember my cancer. I remember graduation. He walked to graduation. Everybody went crazy. But I'm not telling you a story because of graduation. I'm telling you a story because of what he said in my class. I'm teaching this class. I'm teaching all seniors. Okay, so Nathan's graduating class. And I'm talking to everybody, and all of a sudden a socially volatile, we start, start talking about socially volatile issues. And I said, okay, we start talking about this thing, and euthanasia comes up. Should a person have the right to terminate their life if they have a debilitating degenerative disease that's ultimately going to end in death, right? There's arguments on all sides of that, okay? So kids start talking, and they have their own opinions and stuff, and it gets, I don't want to say heated, it actually got, was very, very constructive. It was people talking about different arguments. Well, Mike is in a wheelchair, and he's to my right with his mom. And out of the corner of my eye, I see him slowly just, I mean, because everything Mike did took time. So he just very slowly raised his hand. Now, my wife said, be authentic, so I'm going to be real. I'm like, I'm not calling on him. I'm not calling on him. Because if I call on him and he has something to say, it's going to take him a very long time to say it. And I also thought, I'm not calling on him because he could send this in a trajectory that I don't know where it's going to go. So basically, I'm a coward. But I called on him. And it took him probably 75 seconds to say it. But he said, God will never give you anything you can't handle. Again, took 75 seconds to say it. So while he's talking, I'm sitting in my class, and I'm about to lose it. And I look out, and kids have their heads in their hands, all right, because they all know what this kid has battled through. That's the best lesson that's ever been taught in my class. It wasn't taught by me. That kid carried us that day. That kid carried everybody in that class one step closer to Christ in a public school with an incredible amount of courage. Next picture. This is Kaylee McGillcrest. How do you not love this kid right away? You see the picture, like, how do I not love this kid? My kids love Kaylee, all right? She had babysat for him. Her older sister, Jenny, babysat for him. Kaylee has more personality in her pinky than I have in my entire body. Freshman, sophomore year. She is, uh, she's at Columbine, and she, she lost her mother 
and her sister. Wonderful family, beautiful people. She lost them both in less than 18 months. So Kaylee handled everything as well as anybody could. Um, But her junior year, she's walking through the hallway. I had her freshman and senior year. So she's walking through the hallway, and obviously I'm pretty tight with this kid. So and I said, I, I knew I'd had a day where a kid was complaining about something. And when kids complain about things at school, it drives me crazy, especially like minimal things. Like they're upset because they have an 89.4%. Like, why can't I not get the I'm like, geez, get over it, all right? So she's, somebody's walking by, and uh, or she's walking by, and I say, I'm like, Kaylee, come here. Because I, I know it deep in my heart, probably I just asked for her to come over because I wanted her to affirm what I already have and, you know, my, my preconceptions. So I said, Kaylee, come here real quick. She's like, yeah. And I said, do you not hate it when people complain? And she's like, what are you talking about? And I said, do you not hate it when people complain about ridiculous things? And she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, okay, with everything that you've been through, don't you think it's ridiculous how people complain about stupid things? And she said, hmm, no. And I said, what? With everything that's gone on in your life, it doesn't bother you? And she said, no. No joke is what she says. Because I've realized that in their life, what's happening to them is as big to them as what's happened to me in my life. And the kid walked away. She's 16 years old, been through what she's been through. No, I don't judge people. That kid carried me. That kid is an example of not worrying about other people in terms of I'm better or I'm worse or whatever than that. That kid just lived a life that was filled with joy. Next picture. This is my last one. This kid's name is Ben. My wife did an internship in the Midwest, and so when she did her internship, I had to take a year away from school. And so I went and I taught at a school for the visually handicapped or a school for the blind, um, and I met this kid, Ben. I met a lot of great kids, but one of the kids was Ben. And so when you go there, you realize that, again, visual, visual uh, impairments are really kind of an interesting thing. 85% of all people who are legally blind can see something. They can either see shapes or shadows, or they certainly can see light. Only 15% of all people have what's called zero or no light perception. I mean, you can't tell. Like right now, if I closed my eyes, or even if you closed your eyes, even though they're not shining directly, you could tell. I can tell these lights are on right now, and I have light perception even when my eyes are closed. Ben was a total, meaning he was totally blind, zero light perception. So I love this kid. We're walking, I'm walking through the cafeteria one day. I mean, think about that right there. You're blind, and you've got to go get your food in the cafeteria. So you got to get your tray, you got to keep your orientation so that you make sure you know where you're at, that you got to go set it down on the table, and then you got to eat. If you think it's not a brutal type of thing to do, go home and just eat your lunch today with your eyes closed and see how hard it is with your fork and everything else. So anyway, this kid, I walk by him, you know, I hit him in the back. I'm like, hey, Ben, how you doing, buddy? He's like, hey, Tanelli, how are you? I said, doing good, man. He's like, hey, come here real quick. He said, hey, I just sat down. Before I start my food, would you bless, bless my lunch? Will you pray for it? Pray for me? Well, dude, I'm, I call myself a Christian, right? But I'm also a public school teacher, and you've already heard, kind of a coward. So I was really, really clever. And I'm like, why don't you pray, Ben, and, and I'll listen. Isn't that clever and kind of cowardly? Probably more cowardly than clever. So I tap him, like, why don't you pray? And then it happens. This kid thanks God for everything in his life, for his friends, for his family, for the food in front of him. And then he goes like, he talks about knowing Jesus and the preciousness of knowing Jesus. I don't know about you. I complain when I don't get a good parking spot. I complain when I get a hangnail. That kid doesn't complain. That kid is carrying me 
One more thing about the complaint thing, which I think is an interesting thing. I don't know. If you want to go back to Mike's picture, that's fine, but if not. But, so Mike Hansey speaks to my classes every single year. So he comes in to my sociology class, and he talks. And I had heard Mike never, ever had ever asked why. He's never asked his parents why. And so I went to his mom after all this had happened, and he graduated. I'm like, did he seriously never ask why? She said, he's never asked why one time. So we're in my class, this is a little, maybe a few years ago, and I said, Mike, I know you've never asked why, but please tell me, you have asked, though, you've said, like, you wish this never happened, correct? He's like, I, I don't wish that. I said, Mike, you don't wish this never happened? He said, no. I said, tell me why. And he said, because I would never have had the opportunity to work at Craig Hospital. I would never have had the opportunity to talk to people who've been through what I've been through and tell them that there's hope. I wouldn't even have the chance to come and talk to your classes, Tanelli. Do you see why I say that kids have carried me? Do you see why I say that kids in the public schools have carried me? Now, there have been countless more, and there have been countless people in your life that have done the same thing. So what does it all mean? It means, honestly, i got to tell, tell you, after th- almost 30 years of teaching, I've embraced being that guy. I've embraced being that guy. And I've embraced the fact that the best lessons aren't taught by me. They're taught by my kids. They're taught by the students. The crazy part is, why would I even expect any different, you know? Why would I expect any different? David was a kid when he conquered Goliath, right? Jeremiah was a teenager when he became a prophet. And God chose a girl who was the age of the kids in my class to carry the Savior of the world. Do you remember when Jesus is entering Jerusalem? And it's such a great scene. And all these kids, it says, the Bible says there's a bunch of kids who are screaming Hosanna. They're singing, screaming praise to God. Can, Chloe, can you go to that verse real quick? And the Pharisees say, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus answered. Have you never read from the mouths of children and infants you have ordained praise? And I guess what I'm saying is if God can ordain praise from the mouths of babies, how much more so than from the mouths of teenagers? Now, if you're in my class, you know I get off on tangents all the time. And I'm going to get off on a very short one, a very small one real quick, and it's this. Teenagers are getting a bad rap. Teenagers get a bad rap. There's this big quote, all right? And it says this, The children now love luxury. They have bad manners and contempt for authority. They show disrespect to their elders and love chatter in the place of exercise. Children are tyrants, not servants of their households. They no longer rise when their elders enter the room. They contradict their parents. They chatter before the company. And they, here we go, they tyrannize their teachers. All right? Now, there are many adults today, I'm not saying in this room, who truly believe this in their heart. And that is a common mentality out there because I hear it all the time, people saying, don't you think kids have changed? Don't you think kids have changed? Maybe you're right. Maybe this is true. But maybe you're not right at all. Maybe you're not right at all. And the reason I say this is because the quote that so many people think adequately describes the next generation, do you know it was written over 2,400 years ago? That is, that is Plato quoting Socrates. It's like, it's like the hobby of every generation is to shred the next generation. But I got to ask, and this is, like, you, you got to ask yourself, do you really think this generation is so much different than your generation? I mean, if I asked you right now, what did you want to know when you were a teenager? I bet you would say, and even if you couldn't articulate it back then, and maybe even not today, I think everybody wants to know two things. One, you want to know that you're loved, and you want to know that your life has a purpose. 
I don't care if you're 13 or you're 103. You want to know that you're loved and you want to know that your life has a purpose. Do you really think they're different? They're not different. They want to know the same two things. These quotes right here. Pascal says, there's a God-shaped vacuum at the heart of every man. Augustine says, you've made us for yourself, O God, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. This generation feels the same things that your generation does. And by the way, they're not the ones, people are like, well, what about all the technology? They didn't create the technology. They didn't create the technology. So I ask you again, like, do you really think kids today are that different than you were? One last thing. You might be one of these guys right here. And that's a beautiful thing. You might be one of the people that's carrying someone. But have you ever noticed the people who are best at being this guy right here have been this person right here? That's Char's message. That's Meredith's message. They're so good at being this person here because they've been that person there. I'm not your pastor. You had a phenomenal pastor. I love that dude. But I don't know if any of us ever understand the depths of God's goodness until we've been on the mat. I just don't know. Maybe we do. Until we realize that we have no hope but him. Because it's on the mat that you learn the depths of your own need. And you learn the love of the only one who's ever going to really make you well. I think you learn that here better than you learn that here. Now, my daughter loves to listen to and loves to quote Timothy Keller. And she has told me many times that the truth of the world is that we are more broken than we could ever imagine. And at the same time, we are more loved than we could ever, ever hope for. I don't know if the math's the only place you learn that lesson, but it sure seems like to me it's the place where it becomes most clear. So, since school's starting in a week, you all have one homework assignment. Here we go. One, thank God for the people who carried you and thank them too. I know you think of four people, text them, call them, thank them. And I know you're like, well, they've already told them. Tell them again. You telling them will do them good and it'll do you even more good. Now, I sent a text to my buddy last night, really heavy text about how much I loved him and everything like that. He texts back, he's like, have you been drinking? And I'm like, yes, no, I had not been drinking. I had not been drinking. Do that. It's amazing how much good that will do. Next thing, do what you can to help those that are on the mat right now. There are people on the mat right now. I was listening to a Rick uh, Warren sermon, and Rick Warren said, if you go into a social setting and you're worried about what people think of you when you go in there, which is basically how I go into every social setting, all right, every class I go, I'm like, what are they going to like me or not? He says, you're thinking about it all wrong. You go into every social setting and you should be saying, God, put somebody in my, in, in my path tonight that will help me. God, put somebody out there, sorry, that I can help. Put somebody out there that I, that's basically struggling right now and that I can give them, a, you know, some type of encouragement. That's how you should look at social settings. That's how you carry someone. And by the way, it doesn't have to be grandiose. There are people in this room who bring joy and delight to a lot of people's lives, and that's not necessarily, not like, I'm going to get mentioned in a sermon. My wife's grandmother is 94 years old. She spends probably about 355 days a year in one room. She gets out 10 days a year. But, and that's great when she does, and we go visit her and it's wonderful, but she's in that room a lot. But she carries everybody. Her kids, her grandkids, her great-grandkids, constantly prays for them, constantly prays for them. She's carrying them every single day. 
prays for the leaders of our country, here we go, regardless of party, prays for the people in this church. She prays for people she doesn't even know. And truthfully, if this whole thing about Christianity is true, she's fighting a battle that we just don't see. But it's certainly no less important than the battle that we do see. She is carrying people from that one tiny room. Last thing. There's a beautiful verse that says, God is close to the brokenhearted, and he rescues those who are crushed in spirit. If you're on the mat, if you're on the mat, remember the truth that when you're on the mat, and it may not feel like he is there, because let's face it, let's be real, sometimes it feels like he's not. But even at those times, you are more loved than you could ever hope for. So with that being said, worship team, will you guys come back up? I'm just going to pray. God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for the people you have put in our lives. For the students you put in my life, for the family, but for the people you've put in all of our lives. We can think of those four people. We can probably think of 40 people who have carried us closer to you. And you put those people there for that sole purpose. Thank you for those people. Please help us to carry others. And most importantly, God, we thank you that we have a Savior who meets us on the mat, who loved us enough to not only show us how to live, but to give his life for us. And it's in his precious name that we thank you and pray these things. Amen. Thanks, Wes Bowles. I really appreciate it.